Well, good morning, everybody. You may remember, <clears throat> if you were here with us this time last year, that um, this time last year we did a 10-part sermon series on gospels, uh, sorry, on miracles in John's gospel. Is this falling off? Feels like it is. Hold on. There we are. I'll try and get my thoughts in order now. Yeah. This time last year we did a 10-part sermon series on miracles in Mark's gospel. Great. Good. Well, this year we're doing a sermon series on miracles in John's gospel. So we're looking at miracles. Miracles are confronting. That's actually half the point. In all four gospels, we see people miss, ignore, or misunderstand miracles. Miracles can be difficult to understand. In John's gospel, almost everybody at the wedding in Cana missed what would later become one of Jesus' most famous miracles. And the Pharisees in John's gospel routinely ignored, uh, ignored Jesus' miracles. Even though there was evidence of a paralyzed man healed instantly and strong, or a man born blind suddenly seeing right in front of their faces, all they could see was a felony, a crime, a violation of the law, someone working on the Sabbath day. And sometimes Jesus' miracles were completely misunderstood. Those present at the feeding of the 5,000, they know that something miraculous has happened, but they interpret it as an opportunity for financial gain. When Jesus points them to the true meaning of the miracle, they respond by asking for a sign, which is hysterical. Well, miracles continue to be difficult to understand. Over the last few centuries, many have felt that the miracles of the Bible, uh, they're something of an embarrassment. Uh, it is commonly assumed that they must simply be part of some magical, pre-modern, pre-enlightenment mindset, even evidence perhaps that the Bible itself cannot be taken seriously. Even within the church, there are some who take offense at the miracles because they can't be reconciled with our own thought categories. We might see Jesus breaking what we might call the laws of physics, such as his walking on water or feeding a multitude, and be scandalized by that. I know that it is not at all rare in churches for pastors and preachers to supply so-called natural explanations for these phenomena, the existence of a sandbank, for example, so as to lessen the scandal. But this is, of course, as irritatingly blind as the Pharisees. It is impossible to separate the gospel, the good news about Jesus, from miracles. Um, apart from anything else, the miracles of Jesus are an historical fact. All historical sources, Jewish, Christian, and Roman, all historical sources attest to the fact that Jesus' public ministry was saturated in signs and wonders, healings, miracles, exorcisms, raising people from the dead, walking on water, feeding multitudes. He had to stay indoors to avoid them. The miracles of Jesus are an historical fact. 
Jesus was in very high demand, and he was very, very famous in his own time. Huge crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed. Where the historical sources vary, of course, is how they interpret the miracles. Jesus the conjurer, Jesus the demonized, or Jesus the Son of God. But there's no doubt, there's no question, the miracles happened. They're an historical fact. Last year, uh, looking at miracles in Mark's gospel, the basic thesis of our work was this. Miracles are easy to misunderstand, but when you know how to interpret them, miracles turn out to be an amazingly articulate form of communication. In fact, miracles say so much, it is miraculous. Now, as we swap from uh, Mark's gospel to now look this year at John's gospel, that remains true. Miracles say so much, they're miraculous. But there are differences, and the differences are important. In the other gospels, the other three gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, these three gospels sometimes collectively being referred to as the synoptic gospels because they see together, they have a similar view of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, in the synoptic gospels, the miracles are often referred to as dynamis, uh, works of power in Greek, dynamis. Miracles in these three gospels speak of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and demonstrate powerfully the breaking in of the kingdom of God. In the synoptics, there are dozens and dozens of miracles. Mark's gospel, for example, has 17 major miracles and several summary statements referring to collections of miracles. But in John's gospel, actually, we get just seven. Just seven presented for closer examination. This gospel, John, he's aware, and he tells us in a number of places that actually Jesus did any number of miracles, but the author wants us to consider carefully just seven. Well, seven in the Bible, seven is the number of holiness. That's what it means kind of symbolically. In Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day, thereby consecrating it, that is, making it holy, the seventh day. Seven in the Bible is symbolic of holiness. And indeed, in John's Gospel, miracles are usually referred to by another Greek word, semea, signs. Signs of what? Signs pointing to where? Well, we'll find out as we take a closer look. Our text today offers us a candid, behind-the-scenes look at, to quote verse 11, the first of the signs, Jesus turning water into wine. Now, John's record of this sign begins with the words, on the third day. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Again, in the Old Testament, important things happen on the third day. Just as one example, when Israel met with her God for the very first time, it was under the shadow of Mount Sinai on the third day. But 
On the third day, after what? Three days after meeting Nathaniel? Three days after leaving for Galilee? Three days after arriving in Galilee? It's not made explicit. It's not obvious. But perhaps John is referring to words that, in our text, Jesus has just said to Nathaniel, chapter 1, verses 49 to 51, Daniel, uh, and, uh, sorry, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, so then, in chapter 1, Jesus has already gathered a small group of disciples, men who understand that Jesus is God's promised king, the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. And one of the Messiah's titles, an honorary title in the Old Testament, was son of God. Jesus promises all of his disciples, because the you in those verses is plural, Jesus promises all of his disciples that they will see greater things. And he gives himself a different title, Son of Man. Jesus' enigmatic answer to Nathaniel's declaration of faith could possibly be reworded as, you believe I'm the Messiah? Wonderful. But you don't yet have the vaguest idea who I truly am. But you will. And now, on the third day, a wedding in Cana. The entire community, the entire village would have been invited. Everyone gets invited to a, a wedding banquet. But there is a disaster. The wine runs out. Um, this might be difficult for us to understand in our culture, but the, the wine running out, that would have been hugely embarrassing, deeply shameful, utterly humiliating for the bridegroom, for his family, and especially for the father of the bridegroom. Profound loss of face. And shame was a serious thing in their culture. I mean, if, if you'd been shamed or if, you, if you'd been shamed as a family, people would stop doing business with you. People wouldn't ask you out because you came that, from that family. Um, this is a serious thing, this loss of shame, this loss of face, this shame. Um, somewhere, someone, there's been an accident, a miscalculation, an error of judgment, not enough wine. Jesus' mother is one of the first to perceive this difficulty. Um, you might like to notice that Jesus' mother, along with the author, is suddenly anonymous. Her name is blanked. We all know her name is Mary. We all know the author's name is John. But in John's gospel, the sources, the names of the sources are removed so that they too may be signs. Um, living beings who point away from themselves to someone else. Mary, is, Mary is, is, is an eyewitness source for this document. She's a co-author. Her name is blanked. She's an author. Um, she's suddenly just Jesus' mother, not Mary. 
and she's the first one to perceive this difficulty, and she immediately moves to involve her son. Her son responds, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Um, As one of your footnotes tells you in your pew Bible, you'll see in the footnote there, Jesus calling his mother woman was not disrespectful. In fact, it actually was a formal and respectful form of address. But back to that phrase, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, actually, John will keep on telling us through his gospel, Christ's hour has not yet come. Repeatedly, the hour has not yet come until the day of Christ's crucifixion. Then his hour has come. What is the day of crucifixion? What is that for Jesus? It's his hour. It's come. The hour to do what? It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in being glorified, to glorify the Father. This is what these signs mean. The signs point to the cross. Um, We are about to see something in water jars and wine. We are about to see something which is a partial revelation of the glory of God, but the full revelation of the glory of God will be the cross. This sign will help us to understand, therefore, the cross. It's a sign to the cross. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all include as introductory material for us, they include the baptism of Jesus, followed by Jesus is going out into the wilderness to be tested. John blanks all of that. He knows that we already know this. John writes his gospel assuming we've already read at least one of the other gospels, and this assumption is plain in a number of places. This is where John wants us to start, not with the baptism, not with the testing, but with water turned into wine. A sign. A sign that will help us to understand the cross. This is what that is about. Well, Jesus has not either confirmed or denied his willingness to get involved. Nevertheless, his mother involves him anyway, and uh, his mum gives the servants the wisest possible advice ever offered anyone anywhere, and that advice is, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. There is just no better advice. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. The best advice ever. And as we'll see, it comes to the best outcome in this context. Do whatever he tells you to do. There are stone water jars there. They were enormous, each holding between 75 and 115 liters of water. The water wasn't there for cooking or cleaning. It wasn't there for drinking. The water was there for cleaning, to be sure, but not the form of cleaning we'd recognize. This had nothing to do with hygiene. No, this has to do with ritual cleanliness, cleanliness before God. You see, in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, the people were commanded to be holy just as the Lord is holy. This idea was illustrated through the concept of cleanliness and uncleanness. Lots of things made you unclean. When you were unclean, you still belonged to the people of God. You still belonged to God, but as an unclean person, you could not enter into the presence of God. To be unclean meant you couldn't go into the temple. 
the presence of God, nor by extension into the synagogue. You were unclean. You belonged to God, but you could not enter his presence. Things that made you unclean included disobeying the food laws, emission of semen, menstruation, some types of skin disease, contact with human waste or with a human corpse or with the corpse of an unclean animal. Now, in the first century world, in the days of Jesus, there were many, many Gentiles living in the Holy Lands and there were many, many Jews living in the Gentile world. Ritual contamination was just an everyday part of life. How could you be sure when you handled money or goods in the marketplace, how could you be sure that the last person uh, to handle what you're now handling wasn't some pork-eating Gentile? You have to get clean. And so this endless cycle of baptism and rebaptism, of ritual washing of hands, indeed, of everything that came in from the marketplace, day in and day out, you were either utterly OCD about these things, or you just gave up. It was all too difficult to be right with God. It was all too hard to be clean in His presence. And if you did give up, if you just, if you just couldn't it bother being, even trying to keep of lo- the laws of Moses as interpreted through the traditions of the rabbis anymore, then if you gave up, then you received a technical label which was sinner. Someone who no longer even tried to keep the laws of Moses. Uh, these jars, it would seem, were empty. Maybe as they prepared for the banquet, they'd been in heavy use that day. They're empty. Jesus tells the servants to fill them up. There were no taps. These servants now commit themselves to some hard labor, shifting up to perhaps 690 kilograms of water from the village well or from a cistern outside of the village by hand. But they did so bringing the water up, filling the jars to the brim. Jesus also worked. He turned water into wine. That takes work. What kind of work does that take? I have absolutely no idea. And I would imagine it's beyond understanding for human beings. But Jesus also worked. We know where it went to from there. When the water was redrawn from these jars, it was wine. And not just any wine. It was the best. Actually, Jesus turned a lot of water into a lot of wine, just under a thousand bottles of wine in our terms. Then John tells us in verse 11, this is sign number one. How are we to understand this? Well, wine in the Old Testament was understood to be a gift from God, something that made people happy, something that gladdened the heart, something that brought joy although it could be a problem if you got addicted to too much of the stuff. Um, The prophets, including both Amos and Joel, the prophets often used the image of a a superabundance of new wine dripping from the mountains, flowing from the hills, a superabundance of new wine as a way of describing the day of the Lord, the, the, the day that God comes to visit his people, the time when the son of David comes, when the exile ends. That would be a day of superabundance, of superabundant new wine, of superabundant grace, of superabundant joy. 
Jesus, Jesus is confirming this to his disciples. He's saying, yes, this is that. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day God visits his people. I am the king. I am the Lord. The disciples understood the sign and they believed in him. The stone water jars speak of the old way of relating to God. This endless cycle of clean again, unclean again, in again, out again, acceptable, unacceptable, unacceptable, acceptable, endless cycle and repetition. The, the stone water jars therefore fundamentally speak of shame, shame before God. We, we need to be made clean. We need to be clean in God's presence, but ultimately we can't do it ourselves. You, you just get OCD and just neurotic or just give up, but you can't do it yourself. And notice also that there were six of them. Seven is the number of holiness, making six in the Bible the number of falling short. Not measuring up, not making it. And we remember the initial circumstance, running out of wine at a wedding banquet, a thing of shame. In this sign, Jesus saves from shame and in its place offers a superabundance of joy. This, the first of his signs, reveals Christ's glory. Um, and this is important. Uh, glory is important in John's gospel. Um, John is concerned for glory. John uses the word glory more than all of the other three gospels combined. What is glory? Well, the Hebrew word translated as glory in the Old Testament basically means heaviness or substance or worth. The Greek word translated as glory in the New Testament basically means honor or reputation. The biblical concept of glory includes all of those ideas about publicly seen weightiness, substantiability, substantialnessness, if that's a word. Um, in, indeed, beauty, honor, reputation, attractiveness is glory. Um, just in case you haven't noticed, I am glorious. You've probably noticed I'm limited in my glory. What's important is that you've noticed that you are glorious. Uh, you will have noticed that we differ from one another in glory, in how we glorify our Creator. As creatures, we are all glorious, but we differ from each other in glory. Paul tells us that star differs from star in glory. The sun has one type of glory. The moon has another type of glory. God is perfect and unlimited in his glory, the source of all glory. To see the glory of Jesus is to see the glory of God and to understand who he is in a special way. His beauty, his extraordinary beauty, his glory is seen in this sign. He is humble. He is not self-aggrandizing. His method is lovingly self-sacrificial. 
working for the benefit of others in order to save them. This is what the sign is about, but the purpose of the sign is to point to the cross. This is almost perfectly revealed in the cross, which fully reveals and perfectly reveals his loving and humble sacrifice, how he sacrifices himself for us, taking away our shame and disgrace, all of the ways in which we fall short, failing to love God and our neighbor wholeheartedly, so that there might be a superabundance of joy, eternal life with him and with the Father, eternal pleasures at his right hand. Uh, Spiritually speaking, we can say that the fact that we all fall short, uh, that idea that we fall short, that we cannot measure up, it's an idea that includes our accidents, miscalculations, errors of judgment, as well as our sins, transgressions, wickedness, bad things that we do. The fact that we fall short gives God the right to judge and condemn us. But at the cross... God forsakes his own right to judge and condemn us as he judges and condemns himself through the Son on our behalf. God has that right. We all sin and fall short. But God forsakes that right at the cross for our sake. Today's miracle is about the fact that at the cross, God also forsakes his own right to shame, embarrass, and humiliate us. He has that right. We all fall short. But at the cross, he forsakes his own right to do that forever. Shaming his son, who takes that willingly on our behalf in order that it might be done and so that he can say, it is done. Finished with. At the cross, Jesus took our shame and humiliation before God upon himself in order that it might be finished. In turning water into wine, Jesus covers over the falling short, the accident, the miscalculation, the error of judgment, whatever it was that meant that this bridegroom and his bride could not provide new wine, the shaming event. Jesus covers over it. And he uses six stone water jars filled to the brim containing new wine, replacing shame with a superabundant joy, showing us in the sign that God is going to cover over our shame and humiliation too. Let's notice also that the MC and the party guests, they never know about this miracle, at least not at the time. It is the servants who did the hard work in obedience to Christ's command. And the disciples who already believe in Jesus as king, they're given the gift of insight that Jesus has turned water into wine. You see, um, seeing is not believing. No, believing is seeing. Understanding who Jesus is, seeing his glory, requires an earlier commitment to believe in him and to obey him. To those on the outside, to those who neither obey him nor believe in him, this whole thing passes by without them even being aware of it. And when they do hear about it, they'll completely misunderstand it. They will think of it, perhaps as the comedian Rowan Atkinson thinks of it, as a rather clever party trick. 
In, but in the same, in the same way, um, in the same way, the cross to those who believe and obey, the cross is salvation. It is unspeakably beautiful. It is the most beautiful thing that has happened in history, in all of history. But to those on the outside, it's disgusting and wretched. It is a tragic waste of a man so talented. It is a miscarriage of justice as he had to go through that shame and humiliation, the most shaming, humiliating way the Romans could think of executing someone. It is a miscarriage of justice, an appalling miscalculation to those on the outside, but to those on the inside, to those who understand it is salvation. It is the most loving and the most beautiful thing that has ever happened. The MC in verse 10, do you see how he gives the glory of the miracle uh, to the bridegroom? The bridegroom gets the glory for saving the best wine till then. I don't, he doesn't say what, how he responded. I guess he just stood there grinning, not having the vaguest idea what was going on. Jesus could have jumped up at that point and said, Hold everything! No, 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 no. A lot of time and effort's gone into this particular miracle, and he had nothing to do with it. I did it. With a little help from my friends. But Jesus didn't do that. And because Jesus isn't working for his own glory, we glimpse a beautiful irony. The MC says, you've saved the best till now, referring to the wine. But we know that this reference properly belongs with Jesus. God has saved the best till now. As, as John explains in his introduction, the, you see, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this sign has been written so that you may believe, so that we may continue to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. The Lord be with you all.